0: lives in a lovely neighborhood. If you live there, they say you're living good. Pretty lawns with fancy landscapes. She stares ahead with a blank gaze in her lovely neighborhood where the living is good.
1: And the living is good right here on KMET. You're listening to Reverse Your Thinking, and I'm your host, Mark Gertz. I'm a mortgage broker in the county of Los Angeles. I cover all of California and beyond. The purpose of this show is to help you reverse your thinking about different things, help you turn your assumptions on their head, and come up with some new insights in your life. has been our habit the last few weeks. We're going to start the show today with a joke. So here we go. There was a couple that had been married for over 50 years and Because of that, they'd gotten into certain routines, including scheduling their annual medical examinations on the same day so that they could travel together. After the examination, the doctor then said to the man, you appear to be in good health. Do you have any medical concerns that you would like to discuss with me? The gentleman said, in fact, I do. After I have sex with my wife for the first time, I'm usually hot and sweaty. And then after I have sex with my wife the second time, I'm usually cold and chilly. Hmm, that's very interesting, replied the doctor. Let me do some research and get back to you. After examining his wife, the doctor said, everything appears to be fine. Do you have any medical conditions that you would like to discuss with me? The lady replied that she had no questions or concerns. The doctor then said, you know, your husband had an unusual concern. He claims that he's usually hot and sweaty after having sex the first time with you and then cold and chilly after the second time. Do you have any idea why that might be? The wife chuckled to herself, that old buzzard. That's because the first time is usually in July, and the second time is usually in December. And on that note, wanted to cover a few things with you today before we, before our guest comes on. Student loan forgiveness has been in the news of late. Most people I talk to about it think it's a, a good idea with reservations, and one of the reservations they have is giving people the opportunity to uh, give up their debt. At the same token, uh, one of the things about student loans is that it's really you know, handcuffed a very large segment of the population, especially young people in their 20s and 30s, with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. And one thing that's new is that in some cases, there's the ability to discharge that debt through bankruptcy. I was reading an article about this that caught my eye, particularly because they interviewed the co founder and CEO of a nonprofit called Upsolve U P S O L V E. Upsolve. This is a nonprofit that helps people to file for bankruptcy if they are low income. And I have news for you out there, folks. Low income nowadays for a family, the four probably is something, you know, up to $100,000, if not more. Many of the clients of this company, Upsolve, um, go into debt pursuing higher education in the first place, expecting to land a stable job on a promise of a better salary and healthcare coverage. But over the last few years, we've had a rocky employment market and, you know, bad things happen to good folks. As he says, and I quote, As a society, we've really stigmatized individuals who run into financial problems. And many times it's no fault of their own. We have many users who have $40,000 or more in medical debt from an accident, and that could happen to anyone. You know, filing for personal bankruptcy basically happens in two forms. It's chapter seven and chapter 13. Which way you go is usually determined by your assets and your debt accumulation. And a good attorney or Upsolve can be a big help in figuring out which way to go. The fact that you can use the bankruptcy courts to help you to pay off student debt is a tremendous opportunity. And I don't necessarily mean filing bankruptcy and walking away because a Chapter 13 is a program that gives you an opportunity not to walk away from your debt, but to restructure your debt over uh, a five-year period of time, so that you can pay it. And the judge determines, based upon your financial situation, if you have to pay 100% of that debt or a smaller amount, sometimes down to as low as thirty dollars to $50,000. And this can be a, a major help, a major help to people that are suffering under huge debt loads. If you're in that type of a situation, I strongly recommend that you look into Upsolve solve to see if they can help you find a solution to your student debt issues. We're going to take a quick break and be right back. You're listening to Reverse Your Thinking on KMET. And welcome back to Reverse Your Thinking. Anybody listening in our audience is working with or for a nonprofit organization and you have a fundraising benefit coming up, give us a call on KMET because we would like to put an ad for you on the radio to help promote your event at no cost to you. That's right. Free advertising for your nonprofit and their event. Just give us a call and let's see if we can help you raise money for a good cause. You know... When my son was about seven years old, he was driving me crazy, as seven-year-olds sometimes can do. And I was talking to my therapist about it, and she was chuckling. At some point, I stopped and I said, okay, what's so funny? And she said to me, they don't just get your good looks, they get your wiring too. That made me think. And I now live in a household with a child and my wife, and they they both have very different sensibilities than I do on a lot of different things, not the least of which is making lists of things to do. It surprises me how many people in this world, for some reason, hold all of the things they need to do in their head and then don't understand why they're confused all the time. You can't, well, I shouldn't say you can most people can't effectively keep a list of all the things they have to do in their head. What does it take to take it out of your head and write it down? Oh, I know, you're 16 years old, you don't write anymore. Everything you do is on the computer. Writing, that's like for old people. No, 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 we use a computer or a telephone. Guess what? I hate to be the one to have to you know, break this to you, but there's a calendar in your phone. You can type in all the things you need to do in calendar or notes, you know, and have it come up when you need to know those things. But I live in a household with people that wanna keep everything in their brains. Why am I bringing this up? Well, one of the big issues that's coming up more and more has to do with aging parents and has to do with children, adult children, talking to their aging parents about issues regarding aging, issues regarding the estate, issues regarding many, many things. Because all of a sudden, When your parents are in their 80s uh, or so, or maybe even younger, you find yourself in the situation where the child parent dynamic is beginning to change, where all of a sudden you're becoming more of the parent and they're becoming a little bit more of the child. And many people find the situation incredibly uncomfortable. One of the best things you can do is to begin to look at your parents from a different point of view to reverse your thinking. And stop thinking of them as omnipotent. Stop thinking of them as totally, completely, and and utterly independent. Because as we get older, not only do we become aware of our limitations, but we become inhibited to talk about them. Because we see the change in our lives. We know that we're getting older, but we we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to acknowledge it at least not in Western culture. And if you're a child, if you're in your 40s, 50s, 60s, and you have a parent that's older, guess what? It's up to you to bring up the conversation. The problem is many times we walk into that type of a conversation completely and totally unprepared, and it devolves into an argument or into being defensive. There's a few great ways to handle things like that. And one of those is to make a list. Now you see how this is all tying together. Okay. What is it that concerns you about your parents, about the fact that they're getting older, about the fact that maybe they want to stay in their house? What is it that you want to talk with them about? Guess what? Make a list. Write down, or for those of you that don't write anymore, use your computer, all of the things that you want to ask them, that you want to ask them. Maybe it's about a safe environment. Maybe it's about what they want to happen to certain things after they're gone. It could be lots of different things. If they're starting to have trouble with the activities of daily life, such as dressing or grooming or bathing, you want to talk with them about these things because guess what? They're aware of it. They're just afraid to bring it up to you. We have a funny thing again in Western culture. We believe that if we don't say it, it doesn't exist, but it does. It doesn't go away. You have to broach these subjects with your parents. And in the heat of emotion, many times you forget what you want to say and you don't accomplish the goal. As a matter of fact, it, it becomes a situation where it pushes the two of you apart instead of bringing it together. Make a list of the things that you need to talk with your parent about. And here's a key. Give them a copy of the list before you have the meeting. Nobody likes to be surprised, very few of us, unless you're in a fun house. So give them a copy of the list that you want to talk with them about. Make a time, make a place, and sit down like two adults. You're in your 60s, they're in their 80s, and have a substantial conversation. We'll be right back after this. You're listening to Reverse Your Thinking. And we're back on Reverse Your Thinking. It's my pleasure this afternoon to introduce you to Robert M. Smith, CLU. Robert grew up in L.A., native-born, and received his bachelor's in history from Stanford and his master's in the same subject, UC Berkeley. He's been an insurance advisor for over 35 years, specializing in helping his clients with their personal and business-related life, disability, and long-term care needs. His clients work with him because they worry about how the financial risks caused by death, disability, retirement taxes, and the cost of long-term care will impact their families, business, and legacies. He and his wife, Susan, have four adult children and six grandkids. That's quite an accomplishment in its own right. Robert, thanks for making it. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's my pleasure. So what was it 35 years ago that attracted you to the insurance business?
0: It was actually, if you can believe this, totally accidental though maybe not quite excellent. I, I never thought about uh, finance. I never thought about insurance as a kid. First, I wanted to be a history professor. Uh, then I, my first job, I was working for a nonprofit. Uh, then I went to manage a corporate charitable foundation, and the corporation decided that it didn't want to give any more money away through its foundation. Mm. And, uh, I I reviewed hundreds of grant proposal requests every month, And I said I would help nonprofits learn how to write a good grant proposal. So some people about that and someone said, well, maybe you might want to look at some ways of helping them raise some money. Life insurance is a good way for nonprofits to raise some money. And through that back end, I came into the personal side of the insurance business.
1: How do you use insurance in a nonprofit to raise money?
0: Some of the most successful large nonprofits have built their endowments using gifts of life insurance, either from donors or from members of the board. Uh, There are some universities that actually require board members to take a small policy, maybe $100,000, $200,000. The board turns over every few years, and those policies stay on the books. Hopefully, the donor pays for the premium, but sometimes the the university or the nonprofit will pay for the premium. And If you've been around 50 years and you've had a board of 10, 20 people every year, that's a lot of money you can bring in because ultimately, everyone's one's going to die.
1: Is that right? That's a shock. I didn't know that. Um, that's going to really mess up my plans moving forward. But, oh, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> a lot of
0: donors, these, a lot of these nonprofits are very important to the donor, but the donor's children might not have that same attachment to them. So this is a way of continuing the legacy to the nonprofit. That
1: the- Make, It makes a ton of sense. But seriously, what I think I'd like to do starting off for the average person, life insurance is very complicated. Most people don't really have a great deal of education in it. Even if you've had a degree in business, a lot of times, they don't really spend a lot of time covering life insurance. Could you take a moment and see if you can help our audience reverse their thinking about the different types of life insurance?
0: Certainly. There's two major types of life insurance policies. If you would divide them into categories, one is called term insurance, which is just what it sounds like. It's temporary insurance. It's designed to provide a death benefit for a specific number of years or until a specific age. Most people live their term insurance because insurance companies have figured out how to price these policies. When they give you a specific number of eight, a specific number of years and they know how old you are, they know what your health is, they can pretty much project out whether you're going to be alive or not at the end of that time. And usually you are going to be alive. But it's a very important part of planning because it's a way to get a large amount of insurance for a very small amount of premium at a time when you may need to have a large amount of money uh, in in reserve. You maybe have little kids, you maybe just purchased your first home, your income is not where you would like it to be. So it's an important part of insurance planning. The other side of the equation is what's called permanent life insurance. And there are different types of permanent life insurance. There's whole life, there's universal life, there's variable life, but what they all have in common is the intention to last as long as you live so that you don't die after the insurance runs out. The insurance is going mm-hmm. to pay off at the exact minute that you need it to pay out. Uh, Whole life and universal and variable life have different features and components to them. Variable life uh, has a cash value that is based upon market performance. Universal life is based on mainly bond performance. Whole life is a different product, it's mainly based on guarantees. But that's sort of the ballpark area that you have to look in is, do I need term, do I need permanent, or do I need most commonly a combination of both? because I like to have a lot of ter- uh, permanent, but I can't afford it all. The term insurance provides me with an opportunity to fill in the gap, because at the end of the day, when you do insurance planning, it's the amount of insurance that you have that's most important. You want to make sure that if you die, or if your spouse dies, or someone who you're working with, a business partner dies, that death will at least generate enough income to replace the person who is no longer around.
1: I see. But in terms of figuring premiums for life insurance, one of the big factors is age. And my recollection is that they figure whole life expectancy to 100. Is that still the case?
0: They price the policy. A whole life policy has two components to it. One is a cash value, which is sort of like the equity in your policy, right? And death benefit. Most policies today, the cash value starts out much smaller than the death benefit does, but mm-hmm. they both grow and they will equal each other at, in most cases, age 100, as you say. So they uh, mature at age 100. You don't have to take the, 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 the cash out of the policy at that point, if you're still alive, but okay. at that point, the two numbers will be exactly the same and no more premiums will be due after you're hundred.
1: That was my next question. If you carry a policy to age 100, do you have to keep paying for it to keep it in force? But, but you're saying you don't. No, you don't. And
0: there are, there are other policies that get to that, uh, that age sooner. You can, there's some policies that do it at age 65, policies that do it after 20 years or after 15 years. So it just depends upon what your objective with the life insurance is and and what your budgeting ability is.
1: I see. You know, I just started working with a woman who's 102 and wants to do a reverse mortgage. I'll have to check out if she has any life insurance policy. (laughs) You do more. I I know you're a CLU and, and you've got a bunch of other letters after your name. You do more than just, quote unquote, sell life insurance, correct? Correct. You do a lot of financial planning with people.
0: Well, it's very important to us that people have a plan for their life insurance for their retirement for getting their kids off to college because that otherwise you're sort of picking numbers out of the air and you know some people think that buying life insurance is sort of like buying toilet paper you just pick it off the shelf and you think and see which one's the cheapest or which one's two ply as opposed to three ply or whatever Right. It's not true because, you know, it doesn't matter in the end of the day what the toilet paper feels like. You might wish it were softer, but it doesn't Mm -hmm. really matter. But with life insurance, it's really important and other types of insurance, it's really important that you have the right level of coverage because without it, life can end up being disastrous.
1: I can definitely appreciate that. But, you know, a a lot of our listeners uh, get bombarded with offers in the mail to buy group term insurance, Um, Mm -hmm. one recently sent out by AARP. Offering insurance with no medicals up to about $150,000,
0: right?
1: right. How would you compare that with what you do?
0: Most of the clients we work with need substantially more than that amount of insurance. When those group term letters come to you, not only are they limited about between 50 dollars and $150,000, which for most people, especially if you're here in Los Angeles, right, where your house costs much, much more than that, that's really not going to be enough for most people. The people who are most likely to buy those policies or who most need those policies are people whose health will not allow them to get a policy that's individually underwritten. If that's the only way you can get it, it's a lot better than not having it. It's, those policies tend to be more expensive, really good health, because what they've done is they've averaged out bad health, good health. They figure that a lot of people with bad health are going to buy guaranteed policies. So if you're in, in reasonably good health, those policies will be more expensive than if you worked with an advisor to, to buy insurance on your own.
1: I can appreciate that. That makes sense. One of the the interesting aspects of life insurance is the way it's treated by the government. I think there's any other product that treats it that way. Can you explain that to our listeners?
0: Sure. Uh, The the only other product that is similar to it is a a Roth IRA with a life insurance policy and particularly a permanent life insurance policy. Um, The policy has a cash value that is, let's say, let's use whole life policy as an example. It's Mm -hmm. got Cash value, which is guaranteed to grow at a certain rate over your lifetime. Policies are primarily issued by mutual life insurance companies. So those are companies that are owned by their policyholders, not by stockholders. They're okay. offered solely for the benefit of, of the policyholders. So if you own a share of IBM, you get a dividend at the end of the year. Well, with, if you own a policy, a policy with a mutual company, you get a dividend at the end of the year. The difference is that your dividend from IBM is going to be taxable to you when you receive it. The dividend from the life insurance policy, especially if you reinvest it back in the policy, is not going to be taxable to you. And when you get to, say, retirement age and you want to start taking money out of all the different places you've saved money for for retirement, ways to take money out of a life insurance policy, just like there is out of a Roth, either IRA or 401k, um, that are tax-free when you get to that age the taxes are really important to you because if you have a decent amount of money you're going to still be in the top tax bracket when you get out there and so being able to take pay tax as opposed to 20 30 40% tax is going to be a pretty mm-hmm. you know i've
1: had situations in the mortgage business where we created liquidity using reverse mortgages so that people could keep their policies in force Right. actually make the premiums uh, especially if they got the policy working for a company and then after they retired, they were given the right to keep it, but then they had to pay the premiums themselves.
0: Right. That's that's really important. And it's a, it's a good option for people to have.
1: So you do a lot of financial planning with people.
0: Right. So we work with people to develop a pretty complete plan, again, including all the different things that they should be doing. Not, not all of the parts of a plan are something that we help them with. At least we want to talk about them and make sure that they think about them. So I'll give you an example we encourage everyone we work with or who works with us to work with an attorney. They should have a will and a trust in place. Without that, there's all sorts of ramifications for your heirs. your are going go through probate. That's expensive. It's time mm-hmm. consuming. It's public. It's messy. Uh, a trust can avoid all of that to you. But there's even sort of simpler things. Um, when my father passed away a long time ago, uh, we, the first thing we noticed, because he had a you know, sort of a binder with everything. He had paid for the cemetery plot. He had paid for the mortuary services. He had paid for the opening of the cemetery. He had paid for the casket, right? So everything was taken care of. And that was such a blessing for his wife and his children, Mm. you know, because we didn't have to do any of that. We could grieve and not have to worry about planning for things. So those are the sorts of things that's also part of a financial plan. Do your kids or your spouse or your best friend, whoever's going to be responsible for you after your death, Do they know where you want to be buried? Do they know that it's been taken care of? Maybe you don't want to be buried. Maybe you want to be uh, cremated. And well, if that's the case, where do they want your ashes to go? So there's all sorts of things that are part of a financial plan more than just the financial part of it, because the plan is really what the key word there is. The financial is just the adjective. The plan is the noun. I like
1: that. Is there part of most people's financial plans when you sit down with them that's the weakest part people tend to avoid taking care of?
0: There's lots of weak parts, and I think a lot of it stems from what you said at the beginning, which is that insurance insurance is not a subject that most people learn about in school. There's not a lot of good places to learn about it. Budgeting is one thing, but planning for the future and a good financial program shouldn't just indicate what you want to do if everything works out perfectly in your life financially. It should also include, well, what happens if things don't work out in certain Cases or in certain parts of your life. So I'm give you a few mm-hmm. examples of this. You know, most people don't think about what would happen to themselves and to their families if they were to become disabled. The average mm-hmm. disability in the United States uh, lasts about two and a half years. Well, how would that affect people's ability to keep paying their mortgage, to save for retirement, to send their kids mm-hmm. to school? People don't know that one out of four 20-year-olds, today's 20, one out of four of those people will become disabled at some point during their lifetimes. You know, if, if someone saves 10% a year of, of what they make, one year of disability is going to basically uh, liquidate those 10 years of savings that they had. So disabilities are, that are often overlooked. Long-term care protection, you, you've mentioned a bit before, that's another area that's often overlooked. You know, maybe if someone had a parent or a grandparent or an aunt and uncle who uh, you know, needed long-term care, they yeah. recognize how much it costs, but without that personal knowledge, it's something people either don't think about now or don't want to think about it. You know, I, I always joke that if someone calls me and says they want to talk with me about long-term care insurance, most of the time it's too late. You know, they've come back from the doctor and just gotten that diagnosis that, mm. you know, they, they have arthritis, they have whatever, osteoporosis. Right. Doesn't have to be life threatening, but now they can't get that, and those costs can be outrageous. Mm-hmm. Uh, Underestimating what a, a non working spouse could earn if that non working spouse had to go back and now start working again, you know, I've usually men tell me, Oh, well, you know, my wife could go back to work. She's in the meantime, mm-hmm. she's been out of the workforce for 10 years raising their children, right? Right? She's she lost 10 years of income, she's lost 10 years of experience, 10 years of seniority. How is that possibly going to happen? Or, you know, a working spouse may not, uh want to go back to work immediately. You might might want to stay home and grieve with the family. So there's all sorts of things that are mistakes that people make and that we try to help them.
1: People don't like to talk about getting hurt or, uh, or dying. None of us think that we're going to get Alzheimer's. None of us think that we're going to get hit by a car. We think that's all going to happen to the other guy.
0: Right. Yeah. You know.
1: How do you normally start to have that conversation with a person?
0: I'm actually very straightforward. I tell them that we need to have this conversation. We're not just going to talk about you know, if they call me up and they say, I want to buy X amount of life insurance, my first question is, how do you know that? Maybe you don't need half of that. Maybe you need twice that. We don't know, we don't know how long you need it for. We need to have a conversation first about what your objectives are, what your financial goals are, what your d- wishes and desires for you, and dreams and aspirations for yourself and for your family are. And then we come to the more specific questions of exactly how much.
1: But Let's hold it there in terms of specific questions. You're listening to KMET. This is Reverse Your Thinking, and we'll be right back after this. And we're back on Reverse Your Thinking, and today we're trying to reverse your thinking about life and health and long-term care insurance with our guest, Bob Smith. Before the break, we were talking about how to broach the subject of life insurance or long-term care insurance. And you said that you do it in pretty straight lines with people. How do they take that?
0: It's funny because when I first started in the business, I was really worried about that. I'm going to be asking some pretty personal questions. Mm -hmm. And what surprised me was no one ever took offense to it. They were actually, I think, happy to be asked. And and people told me things that I don't think they ever told anyone else. And I, I will just tell you one little story of that. I was doing this maybe a year or two in the business. I was introduced to a husband and wife. They invited me over one night for coffee to talk about the insurance. We're sitting at the table. We're talking, starting to do this process. And in the middle of the conversation, the wife gets up and goes into the kitchen Uh, to bring us back some more dessert or something. And while she's in the kitchen, the husband turns to me and says, you know, within a year, we're going to be divorced. And I'm thinking, whoa. But that was how deep we had had gotten into this discussion of what their needs, objectives, desires, wants are going to be What's going on in their personal lives, that he felt he not only could tell it to me, he had to tell it to me as part of this conversation. And that had an impact on you know on what we had to do and how we had to discuss it. Did the wife know that or she She didn't know? He had not, I think things weren't great between them. The the D word had not yet come up in their conversations. I
1: see, but it was in his conversation.
0: Yeah. Gotcha.
1: That's kind of a dicey situation to find yourself in the middle of.
0: Yes. I think it goes to the point, though, of people tell us this thing. There's only probably three people they tell things to. they are us, the insurance advisors. There's the accountant. You know, I I guess the therapist. But uh, that's about it.
1: I'll I'll have to add a fourth, at least least for the women. There's also the hairdresser. You work with people of any age, right? Yes. Okay. You know, this subject is not usually one that young parents uh, tend to gravitate to. And there's sort of an irony for that, because by the time that many people feel they should be talking about life insurance or long-term care insurance, they're in an age where it's it's prohibitively expensive for some of them. At what age, after a couple gets married, let's say, do you think they should really sit down with a CLU like you and go over their insurance plans for the future?
0: I'm mean, going to actually predate that. Um, when my kids were born, I bought them all permanent life insurance policies. Uh When they became older and had their own families, they would have a policy they were paying at one or zero year, that's how old they were, rates of someone that age. The policies had riders on them that allowed them to add up to about a million dollars of additional coverage when they were adults without a physical exam. So even if they had a a terrible health change, they could still get to protect their families. So it's really never too, too early to start. My feeling with a couple that is, has just gotten married is not to wait until that first child is born because if, if it's uh, you know a woman who's getting pregnant or they're doing some surrogacy and you know the mm-hmm. child someone's taking is is going to be the, the birth mother and something happens to one of the parents during that time, if they if they waited until the child is born, you know, they're in as bad shape as they would have been had they never even thought about doing it at any point. So my feeling is once a couple gets engaged, it's certainly time for them to start planning their, for their insurance.
1: Well, it brings up an, an interesting question. Becoming more and more prevalent for young couples to do prenuptials. Have you gotten involved in anything like that with uh, couples with, with insurance planning as part of a prenup? I
0: don't see it very often. Uh-huh. Uh, most prenups tend to be, unless one of the, one of the members of the couple is usually his uh, quite wealthy. Mm-hmm. Usually we see prenups the most when there are second marriages, one or both of the spouses, and then we do see it. Um, and often those prenups will contain a provision that, you know, spouse A has a first had a first family. he's planning on gave, living all of leaving all of his assets to the kids from that family, not the not the first wife, but the kids from that family. Spouse B who's now the spouse, and who's going to take care of him into old age says, what about me? I don't I'm giving up part of my ability to earn income to help take care of you. So in those cases, having a life insurance policy, in particular to, to protect spouse B will be really important.
1: Gotcha. On the other hand, even though you haven't seen a lot of situations with prenups, it it would be a good idea, would it not?
0: Yeah. So if there's any sort of any sort of personally owned property that, um, you know, the spouse brings into the marriage and doesn't want to lose. And for whatever reason, a prenup, is important.
1: Gotcha. You're familiar with 529 plans, right? Yes. That people sometimes put together uh, when their kids are young, just like Mm -hmm. what you were talking about with life insurance, so that they have money for education. Just off the top, it occurred to me, is there any way to incorporate life insurance into a 529 at this point? No,
0: 529 plans are administered by each state. Typically using mutual funds or something like a mutual fund that you can invest in, you can choose your investment options in them. 529s are a good way, not the only way of saving for college, but they're a good way to save. One of the things I always tell people to think about when they're figuring out how they're going to save money is that your child is starting college. The the FAFSA, which is going to calculate how much um, you're expected to pay as the parent into you know, whatever university or college, there some approaches will count more money than other approaches. So you sort of have to look at all the different guidelines, um, because some may require you to spend thirty-three percent of the money, and some may only require you to spend five percent of the money. Okay. You can get a, you can get financial aid for the rest of it.
1: I see. That's very interesting. Is that something that would work out with you, or that would be from a, like a
0: college planner? Either one. The college planner will help design it. They they'll know the rules and then they, but they're not going to provide the products we provide products like that.
1: I got you. Or okay.
0: those or five also can just be purchased individually through whichever state the person chooses. Also.
1: Gotcha. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, I want to find out from you what's going on in the long-term care world. Okay. Okay, it's a deal. Okay, you're listening to KMET. This is Reverse Your Thinking. I'm your host Mark Gertz, and we'll be right back after this. We're back on Reverse Your Thinking, where, according to that last commercial, we talk about life, love, and money. And you're here with us, and we're talking to Robert Smith about everything having to do with life insurance and long-term care. And on that subject, before the break, Robert, can you update us on what's happening in the long-term care business? It seems to me that every time I turn around, I I run into somebody that says, I'm a long-term care guy. What's going on? right now in in that area?
0: What's going on is that the statistics that I've seen say that if you have a husband and wife, both of whom are age 65, there's a 90% chance that one of them will need long-term care before they die and a mm-hmm. 50% chance that both of them will need long-term care before they die. Wow. The average person is needs care, needs long-term care for somewhere between three and four years. If it's a non-dementia, non-Alzheimer's related case, Alzheimer's and dementia typically can run six to ten years. That's a whole lot of money going out the door in Southern California. You know, if you need round-the-clock care in your own home, you go to an agency, twenty-five dollars an hour, and multiply that by twenty-five. That's almost five hundred dollars a day. If you have someone come into your home, you you still have overtime laws in California. They're going to affect what you pay and how many hours you have to pay them for and how. Can you go get by with just one person? Do you have to have two people? So right. the costs are becoming astronomical. And so what's happened is that whereas 30 years ago, there were a whole lot of companies selling individual long-term care policies. Today, there are, I believe, only two companies left that sell wow. standalone long-term care policies. Wow. And just because it's become too expensive, every one of those policies just about is going to have a claim. That's why people bought them. Insurance companies didn't price them properly. The downside for the consumer was that those long-term care policies that were sold over those thirty years um, had no premium guarantee. To raise your premium, they had to raise it on the whole block of business. Every company in the country that sold long-term care has raised premiums at least once, hmm. most of them more than once, and often those increases are in the hundreds of percent, not in the tens of percent or even the ones of percent. So there could be a three, four hundred percent increase uh, in the premium.
1: Gotcha. For, for those in our audience that didn't do the math when when robert said that 24/7 care was costing 500 a day that translates to about $15,000 a month and i have clients that are spending twice that much The you know significant chance that you know this could happen to you but robert let me ask you this what if you sit down with a, a couple in their 20s all right if they incorporate long term care
0: into their budget at that age is it still prohibitively expensive no. So here's the thing. Now, almost all of the long term care policies that are sold today are sold as riders on a life insurance policy, typically a whole life policy. And what they allow you to do is to basically use usually about 75, 80 percent of the death benefit before death. If you need long term care, that means you have to satisfy two of the six activities of daily living. Um, As a result, since the insurance company is already insuring you for that amount of money, just a question, are they going to pay you sooner? Are they going to pay you later? Those riders are very inexpensive. Uh, I was looking at one today with a client. We're looking at a premium death benefit of about $160,000, $170,000. And I think the premium for the rider was going to be about $10 a month. Wow. The premiums, and because it's a life insurance policy, the premiums are guaranteed also. They can't just raise the rates whatever they want. So it, it's a way of insurance companies to save and not get blown out of the water by what the, the future claims are going to do to them. But it's also a way for individuals to use the same dollar in that same policy that they were hoping to pay you know, legacy to their kids. But in this case, they're going to leave, leave it early. The nice thing about using a rider on a life insurance policy is that no matter what happens, someone's going to get something. You know, if you have a car and you have car insurance and you never have an accident, no one ever gets anything. But here, if you die, your heirs get the life insurance. care, you have that. And if you want to retire and use the money, you have the cash value of the policy.
1: So let me ask you a question, tying two things that you've said together. If you take out a whole life policy for your child right when they're born and you put a long-term care rider on that policy, you're giving your kid a hell of a gift, aren't you?
0: Yeah, now most companies don't let you buy them that young. Most companies, uh-huh. have, I think, age thirty is the minimum age. Okay, they'll let them add that rider onto the policy. But even at thirty, it's it's a hell of a gift.
1: Still a hell of a gift. Yeah. Is it ever too late to to really sit down and have this conversation?
0: No, I mean, you know, as again, most of the people who talk to me about long term care, again, either because they've just had some diagnosis, someone, or they know someone who has. My brother in law was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's at the age of fifty four. Wow. So that brought it really home quite quite clear to them. Um, and that's, I think, what moves most people to, to do something about it.
1: I see. Robert, if somebody wants to get a hold of you and have a conversation about life insurance or disability or long-term care, what's the best way for them to reach you?
0: They can either go to my website, which is Services with an S at the end, dot com. Or they can. I've been told if they Google Robert Smith Insurance in Los Angeles, I come up first. I'm not quite sure why, but apparently I do. But Robert Smith Services is a great way to get a of me.
1: Great. And in one sentence, tell us what is the most fulfilling part of what you do.
0: Making. Well, I'll put it this: way. having people tell me that the work that I did with them was the most important financial work they've done over their life. Can Robert, clients who tell me all the time.
1: Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, You're listening to Reverse Your Thinking. I'm your host, Mark Gertz. Get home safe, have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week.
0: Where the living is good.